The Pace Line is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash Pace Line to support the show and see if you qualify. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. Auger, beta, crab. What the hell is Fanny talking about? Now, I live in a rocky area, so I adopted using the word crab and have used it ever since, as in I crabbed and crashed. Some new words from Fatty and a new way to size up a gravel ride from our friend Neil Shirley. Who needs a industry standard to gravel? Like the kind of the gravel scene is about like not having any industry. It's, it's like not having any rules or anything like that. But then as I was riding it and then I shared it with a few people, they're like, hey, this is really helpful. And Patrick still has his chief judge hat on after a weekend at NABS. When someone whips out the word best in conjunction with bike, what is it you think of? Baseline, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick, Hottie, and Fatty bringing you the official podcast of redkiteprayer.com. Find us and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts. I'm using uh, Overcast now, guys. Have you have you guys heard of that? No. Tell me more. No? Oh, it's, it is a podcast player that I use on my phone that lets me control the speed as well as the pauses between words and sentences of podcasts. And it saves a few minutes per episode. How about that? Very cool. Oh, there you go. I should have saved that as my pace line pick. But enough of that, because this is episode 104 of the pace line. I thought we were going to be a two-person ride today, but Patrick parachuted in. Welcome, Patrick. And <laughs> Good to be back. So we... We are a full show. You were never gone as far as our listeners are concerned, <laughs> but it's good to have you back, even though you weren't gone. So it's a standard three-man, three-pole, three-pick group ride. Hottie, RKP guy, because I no longer say contributor, and I just said it correctly on the first try for the first time. What you got for us while you're leading the pace line today? Uh, bike setup research. Mm, how do you get that bike set up for the big ride, the big race? What are your resources? How much energy do you put into this? Have you ever gotten it wrong? We want to know if you got it right, too, but have you messed it up, too? We all have. You are looking for bike beta, <laughs> as I would call it, and that sort of leads toward my, uh, toward my poll, but we'll talk about that in a second. Patrick... Yeah. Publisher of RKP. How was NABS oh, or NOBS? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making sure the huh gets in there. Nah. <laughs> you know, I, I loved every second of it, uh, but okay. I'm ready to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> Not for another 40 minutes, bud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got caffeine to help. All right. Use as much as it takes. And I'm Fatty, and I'm going to be talking about important bike terminology regionally applied. Yep, I'm going to be a word nerd on this episode of the podcast. 
Uh, I, I think it's going to be a fun one. Hottie, why don't you take the first poll? Uh, guys, one of the ways I love to waste time on the internet is to look at other people's bikes. I'll Google a specific race or ride and see how people set up their machines. I read about bike setup, or rather, I read about bike setup at Crusher and the Tusher for like four years before I ever signed up for the race. And Leadville was a two-year equipment research project before I even qualified. I have eBay searches for gravel bikes just so I can check out how other people have set up the rigs for the rigors of mixed surface riding. What may sound like a ridiculous use of an internet connection has paid off, guys. One example was the Copperopolis Road Race. It is in the gold country here in California, and the roads at that race stink. The organizer says run tough wheels and tires. I checked around. I looked into what other guys had run at that race. I ran my 32 Triple Cross Open Pros and a set of Michelin Cryleons during that race. As I raced around that track, I watched other guys flat and break spokes while I made the break and finished in second. My first trip around Old Casadero was also a success thanks to some research on bike setup. Key was my choice to run the WTB Nano. The center line on that tire gave me speed on the pave sections in western Sonoma County, and the knobs on the side clawed into the soil of that same region. Finished second in my age group, mostly due to good prep. I have messed it up, too. <laughs> uh, I gave the wrong advice to my buddy Sean going into last year's crusher, telling him he'd be fine running one-to-one -one ratio on his Santa Cruz Stigmata, Stigmata that is. But he <laughs> suffered big time up the cold to crush with his 42-42 and probably cussed me as Fatty breezed by him on a mountain bike with a dinner plate for his big cog. I have another bike setup project that never played out, and that was the Great Leadville Experiment. I was convinced that a fast time could be laid down by riding a rigid geared 29er. I tried this setup last August, and while the bike felt good, I did not. And I pulled the plug at Twin Lake. So TBD on that one. So gents, I ask you, hmm. How do you gather info, Fatty, on bike setup and any stories of getting it right or course or or screwing it up? Before we get to that, I think we need to get a special effect that we start playing anytime either one of us brings up the word Leadville. You know, a special <laughs> you know, a, a you know, a raspberry sound or something like that. But but I I will say that I used to spend a lot of time thinking about bike setup and way back before the internet was a sophisticated place and was mostly a series of AOL-style chat rooms, um, I spent an inordinate amount of time uh, talking with other Leadville junkies about tire setup and pressure and what tires and so forth. And so this kind of makes me nostalgic for that, but I'm not really like that anymore. Um, I pretty much ride what I have been riding. I have sold bikes uh, and gotten rid of bikes that are special or specific to a particular ride or race that I have in mind. I no longer have a cross bike because I found out that if I just ride this cross bike when I am doing the crusher, that I'm not going to do great on it. I ride my mountain bike the same way that I've ridden my mountain bike the whole summer. Mm. And it works great for me because I am comfortable with how it is set up. I don't change gears. I don't change the tires. I don't change anything about it. I just ride my bike. Um, and that works pretty well for me. Um, uh, biggest case in point for that probably is my specialized single speed. 
Um, it is a it is I think five years old now, and that's old in 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 carbon fiber mountain bike single. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's. I, I, I we'll talk about who has uh, the oldest bikes, man. <laughs> I've seen I've seen what you ride. You don't get to say that I'm the one who keeps the newest bikes. Although, yeah, I like my I like my new bikes, but it's the fact that I've been riding this bike for five years. I am super comfortable when I get on this thing. So no, I'm, I'm not doing a lot of uh, switching around or customizing or beta gathering, uh, as I like to call it, all that often anymore. How about you, Patrick? It's funny because for so many years, you know, being a kind of straight up, you know, license holding, crit riding, road race doing, roadie, it was whatever bike I was going to race and 23 millimeter tires. And I really didn't ever think about setup at all, except maybe in a cyclocross race. And even then not very much. Cause usually I only had like one set of wheels and one set of tires, maybe two. There were a couple seasons where I had two different sets of wheels and two different tires. But since moving to Sonoma County and having, uh, multiple gravel bikes and multiple road bikes. Um, yeah, I, I think a whole lot more about setup now. As a matter of fact, I switched bikes that I was going to ride at the most recent grasshopper, Chileno Valley, literally the night before the ride, I decided, okay, I'm not going to ride that bike. I'm going to ride this one as to whether or not I've gotten it wrong on occasion. That that's sort of hard to answer because I mean, I've, I had the outcome that I had and it's hard for me to say, Oh no, it would definitely have gone better. If, uh, I kind of think that at Chileno Valley, if I'd ridden my felt AR, I would probably even faster, but I'm concerned about how much pain I would have been in at the end. Um, Instead of, you know, if I'd ridden that instead of my seven Earhart uh, with 32 millimeter tires, I would have been on 28s on the felt. So I made a choice based on trying to get to the finish with as little pain as possible. Mm -hmm. I finished, you know, and I was in reasonably okay shape at the end. So um, I'm sure there have been occasions where a different choice would have been faster. But I got to say, with the grasshoppers and some of the other events around here, I really love agonizing over tire and wheel choice, sometimes even bike choice, uh, the days coming up to an event. And there will be a lot of chatter on Facebook, uh, especially in a couple of Facebook groups that I'm part of about, okay, which tires are you going with? Okay. You doing anything crazy with your wheels? And that is really fun. I like, I like exploring kind of tire and wheel choice. Crusher, Crusher messes with me because I don't really want to think about drop bar versus flat bar. I want that part sorted out well in advance. Um, I don't, I don't want to have to think about animal or vegetable. Um, I, I want to know, you know, if it's a drop bar event, okay, which of my six choices uh, am I going to go with? And so that's, for me, that's the fun thing. It's like, okay, I'm going with a drop bar bike, which wheels, which tires. Mm -hmm. And I really find thinking that through an awful lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Burke Swindlehurst, the the organizer for Crusher, doesn't, you know, he kind of walks a line there. He kind of says, it's kind of up to you. Now he, if you read between the lines enough, he, you will find out that 
that the lean goes to the cross bike. Like most of the fast guys you see out there are going to be on the cross bike, but Burke will tell you that doesn't mean it's the right bike for you, as Fatty has proven. So, I mean, like you, Patrick, I get into the to me gravel riding and adventure riding kind of has that three points you you need mm-hmm. to go over. You've got your fitness, you've got the course, and then you've got how you're going to set up your bike. And all three can have variables. Or you can weather can change the course. You can come in not as fit. And what you do with your bicycle can dramatically, I believe, uh, have an outcome on on your day. You know, another guy who's given this a lot of thought is uh, Neil Shirley. Neil has become one of the biggest gravel enthusiasts in the U.S. He has won Gravel Worlds. Twice he has won the Belgian Waffle Ride. And he's always a contender at Dirty Kansas. That was uh, all after a successful career as a pro mountain biker and a pro road racer. Oh, by the way, he finished on the podium in national championships for both disciplines. After his pro racing career, he ran Road Bike Action Magazine and is now with the Lyman Agency, helping spread the word on brands like Mavic, Envy, and Allied Bikes. Like the three of us guys, he loves gear so much so that he has outlined something he calls, and this is kind of all in fun, the Industry Standard Guide to Gravel which offers an easy reference to help define what equipment should be considered for each category of gravel difficulty. Here's Neil. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here. We're uh, at the end of the Tranquillo ride, a great ride put on by Bonk Breaker, our friends at Bonk Breaker, the great nutrition company. And I'm here with Neil Shirley, who you've just heard about. Uh, Neil, uh, first of all, we just finished uh, the Tranquillo ride, I just said. How did your day go? But more importantly, how was your setup? How was your bike setup today? <laughs> uh, the day was awesome. This is the second time I've done the ride. Uh, did it f- for the first time last year, and it's just, it's a blast. It's a mix of pavement and then some fun dirt roads and some trails. Um, good group of people. So I, I rode a, I rode a Lauf True Grit, um, like full gravel bike. Not not entirely necessary. Um, but I, I've, I got the bike recently and I'm really enjoying it. So I put some uh, 40C uh, slick tires on there and uh, had, had more than enough rubber for, for what I needed out there. Yeah, and me too. I ran a steel Fat Chance crisscross today with 38 tubeless. Yep. And that was probably more than I needed today, but it sure felt good. It was nice at the end of the day to have that much rubber. Yeah, you're not complaining on the you know, dirt descents or anything with that. Which uh, gets us to why we're talking to Neil today. He has developed a very interesting thing that you blogged about uh, on your website. Now, first of all, you work for a new agency, the the Lyman Agency, and they have an outdoor blog of some sort, right? And you've written about, about something you call the Industry Standard Guide to Gravel, which sounds... Very official, Neil. <laughs> but it's actually it's supposed to be kind of a helpful hint on how to set up a bike for a gravel ride or race. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it actually started a little tongue-in-cheek because, like, who needs a industry standard to gravel? Like, the kind of the gravel scene is about, like, not having any industry. It's, it's like not having any rules or anything like that. But then as I was riding it and then I shared it with a few people, they're like, hey, this is really helpful. And there's, you know, there's more and more events coming up where, you know, if you're going out on, on the pavement and, you know, you're doing, a, you're doing a race in Tucson or you're doing a race in New York or you're doing a race in California, you kind of know, like, what you're getting in surface. Like, you know, maybe the road's a little rougher or whatever, but pavement's pavement. 
out on the dirt, the gravel, like you really don't know what you're getting from one event to the next. And, you know, road, you know, dirt conditions, gravel conditions change across the board. So it was essentially just coming up with an, a, a, you know, a categorization of what some of the equipment needs could be for a, a you know, a given set of you know, road conditions. So you, there are four categories yeah, in the ISGG. And before we, we move much further, we should say what the ISGG is and what it is not. It is not, as I understand, a, an attempt to judge how hard the racial ride is going to be on the athlete. It is an attempt to judge how hard it's going to be on your equipment. Do I have that basically correct? Yeah, you're, you're entirely correct. It, it, it's some guidelines, um, mostly about about tire size, you know. And then you know, like Envy, they took it and, and you know added in recommended wheels in their line that would go along with that. But but really, it's about it's about the size of tires that you should be running and and you know pressures that that can be found. Um, you know, riders that are really experienced in this kind of segment you know they they have that figured out but guess what there's a whole lot of new riders coming into this this type of riding and they don't really know where to begin so it was it was just breaking it down through my own experience because i've done a lot of these events i i love it i i I really enjoy this type of riding and so it was like using just some of the stuff i've learned to share it with people yeah which gets me to the next question and that is the isgg and your categorization for how hard an event is going to treat your equipment. How did this idea come to you? I'm guessing maybe you were on your bike one day and you went, damn, I got these tires all wrong. Yeah. There ought to be a way to decode this stuff. Yeah, it, it really, it, it, it was entirely through that, through tri- trial and error and going to a lot of events where I just didn't even know what to, what to expect until I got out there. Um, so it was just as you said that that it was through experience that i was like there needs to be there needs to be something um just you know guidelines even if they're very loose guidelines so give me an example i mean uh, you've had great successes in in gravel races but give us an example of how neil shirley has screwed it up have you messed it up before (laughs) oh yeah no i i fully messed it up and like at dirty kanza I run. I ran a 35C tire last year, and uh, that going in, I, I I knew that was the wrong thing. But I was on a bike that didn't allow anything larger than that. But you know that that would be on my classification. That would be a Category Four event, which I have no business running 35C tire. 35C tire could be like a Category Three tire. Um, and so you know, I went in with the wrong equipment and. I flatted because of it multiple times. Um, Good example. (laughs) Pace signers, you heard it from one of the best here. Even even Neil Shirley can make a mistake (laughs) in in a major gravel event like Dirty Kansas. And look, and that's why the ISGG, or that's why you've tried to put this out here, is people put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of training, a lot of thought into these events. They're one-day events. It's all or nothing. And you kind of want to get it right, and you don't want your equipment to fail you, hence we have the, the ISGG. So take us through as quickly as you can the four mm-hmm. categories. How did you lay them out? So um, category one would be like a very, very smooth. I, I, I classify, you know, some people have said, well, you, you, it's like, it's a reverse, you know, categorization for cycling. Like it should be 
category one should be the hardest. But I, I looked at it as like hurricane, cat four hurricane. That's the hardest, right? Okay. Like that's that's right. gnarly, right? Right. So that that's how I laid it out. So cat one is the most basic, um, really smooth, well-maintained gravel road. And that's where you can pretty much run a road setup. 28 mil tires, you know, um, road bike, you don't need tons of clearance. Cat two starts getting into some less maintained, getting some washboard, going up to, you know, 28 at the very minimum, but a 32 um, C tire mm -hmm. is, is pretty ideal. Maybe like an endurance road bike um, where you have more clearance. Category three is, well, like our last descent today where you, there's a lot of just loose, there's a lot of loose rocks. There's, you know, some small ruts here or there. And that's when you start thinking like, I, okay, gravel bike, cross bike, something with bigger clearance. You can run 32 to like 35 C tires. Um, just have a little more security, more rubber on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and then category four is is like rutted out, rocky, non, you know, here in California, we have a lot of it, like our forestry roads that just aren't maintained dirt roads. And uh, that's where, you know, a 38, you know, 38 to 40 C tire, or even in some extreme cases, like 650 B and, you know, a full mountain bike tire mm -hmm. on, on the bikes, which is, you know, starting to become more of a popular setup. Right. Now, the one thing that's harder to account for is Mother Nature. I mean, Mother Nature can change it. We saw that last year here. Sure. We got rain the night before, and suddenly a road bike looked like a very <laughs> bad thing here. Exactly. But you leave it up to folks to check the weather. And topography is the other thing, because gearing has become a, a big part of how we decide what our bike setup is going to be for a gravel event. I mean, I told a friend this year or last year, at Crusher on the Tush, oh, you'll be fine with one-to-one -one ratio. Mm -hmm. No, 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 that was not good enough. He should have yeah. had more gearing. Yeah. But you leave that up to the folks to figure out weather and topography or, or yeah. elevation game. For sure. There's so many different variables. And, and you know, like a, a route today, like if you just judge today off of the, the last descent, you know, that would be category three. But turns out we had 30 miles of pavement riding on the pch to start with so if you look at it as a whole as as the entire event you know you kind of have to weigh like do i want to run that big of a tire for the entire day so you know maybe in in some situations you're not going to have the most ideal setup you know if you're running you know you, you make compromises and that's kind of what gravel is about you figure out what the most efficient setup is for the day and at some points it's not going to be the best setup, but mm -hmm. it's kind of what's fun it, mm -hmm. for me, at least, like trying to figure out what that is. Uh, let's talk something uh, a little broader thing, and that is um, a gravel and adventure riding that you love so much, and I, I I love a lot, and Fatty and Patrick both have become you know passionate about it as well. But the thing we're grappling with, uh, and the ISDG kind of brings us up, is the idea of how much regulation do we need in these rides. Do we need more policing? Do we need more rules? Um, does, the, does USAC need to get involved? I mean, you've done a lot of these events. What do you think? Where do we stand right now with what we need as far as oversight yeah. with gravel and adventure riding? I, you know, I, a little bit of my background, I grew up, you know, I spent 10 years racing professionally and, you know, with, you know, USAC sanctioned everything. Um, they do a great job making sure we're safe. Um, 
On the flip side, these types of events are very much at the discretion of the promoter. And so far, I have never, I've never felt unsafe at one of the events. Could that happen? Sure. You know, maybe, maybe a promoter doesn't do his due diligence on that. Um, but, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I think there's a, it's a little bit of a selling point for some of these events not being sanctioned. Yeah. And, and just their standalone events, of course, they're insured. You know, the promoters are getting insurance and everything. Um, it's just they're, they're not handcuffed. And they're making it. It's, it. What's fun is how unique all these events are. And they're all so different. They're not cookie cutter events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if USAC was able to to figure out a way to sanction some of these events and still keep that uniquity and that that draw, that would be great. I would I would love to see that. Yeah. Well, the ISGG is is out there for any promoter who would like to adopt it. We know this is kind of your idea, and and that's where it's just right now, and it hasn't been fully adopted yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but until it gets adopted, what would be your top tips to anybody starting to consider gravel riding? What do they need to look at to, to make sure they get their equipment right? Yeah, I, I'd say if you are if you really plan on really getting into the gravel scene and you're doing your own gravel rides and, and going maybe doing an event, make sure you get a bike. There's so many options out there now. Like four or five years ago, there were very few options. Um, now almost every large you know brand is making a bike so get something that gives you a lot of tire clearance so once you have a lot of tire clearance i'd say enough for the minimum of 40c tire and and then from there you don't always have to run a 40c tire you can run a 32 you can run a 35 but if you're limited in tire you know the tire width then that creates a problem Um, so so go big and then, uh, then, then you have a very versatile bike that can be used on the road. It can be used at Dirty Kansas. It can be used on mountain bike trails. Well, thanks for writing the piece on ISGG. I think you're just helping further what you and I both love, and that is gravel and adventure riding. And we will see you hopefully soon on the dirt in drop bars. For sure. Having a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. Again, that was Neil Shirley, currently of the Lyman Agency. We'll have a link to the ISGG on RKP. Now, don't take this too seriously, guy. Neil, certainly not. I mean, he knows. He's just having some fun here with something he loves and we love. But if it becomes a thing, the ISGG could help out some folks make decisions about equipment. So throw out the guessing game, right? And just hmm, put, put on that bike exactly what you need from the get-go. So, Hadi, is... The Crusher, a Cat 3 or Cat 4? Um, I don't know. It is. Let's see if he's got it. Yeah, he has it listed here as a Category 3. So, okay. yeah. Infrequently okay. maintained roads or acquire a high level of skill when tackling on a road bike due to the exposed mm-hmm. rocks. And that would, yeah, that's a, that would act, I mean, a road bike at Crusher would cause you some difficulty. That, You'd probably break the bike. Well, no, some guys do it, but it'd be difficult on the bike. Yeah, I don't know if uh, a, a straight-up road bike would be a great call for that. I do know that someone won the uh, Rebecca's Private Idaho on a straight-up road bike with road mm-hmm. wheels. 
Yeah. So you know, one of the most common yeah. questions I Skill get matters. What, what, Fatty, one of the most common questions I get concerns the Belgian waffle ride. People always ask, "Oh, have you mm-hmm. done?" I go, "Yeah." They go, "Okay, well, how'd you do bike setup?" They always say, "I'm thinking about running a cross bike or this or that." Uh, a lot of people like what I say over bike that course. Like that course is really a road for for a grab for a so-called quote unquote adventure ride. That's really uh, suited for a road bike. And one little hack you can use is look at the promoter. So in the case of BWR, that's Michael Marks's ride. What does Michael like to ride? Well, previously, he doesn't ride one currently, but when he set up the ride, the race, he rode a giant TCR with 404 zips. He rode that thing all mm-hmm. the time. He rode it at Belgian Waffle Ride. That's what he likes to ride. He wants to finish his ride. So chances are, if you kind of emulate what the promoter is about, what the promoter likes to ride, Sam Ames, for instance, Rock Cobbler, likes to ride a Try uh, rather a specialized crux with 35s. Boom. Pretty much you can go along with a setup like that. So that's, a, that's another little hack that can work. A good hack. I think there are some serious caveats there, which I think we will bring up in another episode. We can't talk forever because it's my turn. Right. <laughs> I, I'm going to come out and take a poll. And I am. I want you to cast your minds back to years ago back when Mike Ferentino was doing a lot of writing for Bike Magazine. He wrote uh, a particular article about a mountain biker's death as he descended the portal trail in Moab, Utah. This story really stuck with me for a few reasons. First, Mike's writing sticks with you in general. The second was he was describing a trail I am familiar with and am terrified of. And third, he borrowed a term from rowing, crab, as a verb, to describe when you unintentionally hit a rock or a log with your pedal and get thrown off your line. Now, I live in a rocky area, so I adopted using the word crab and have used it ever since, as in I crabbed and crashed. And a few friends use it too. It's become kind of regionally accepted. Another term I use, and this one I don't remember the source for. I might have made it up. I don't know. Auger, as in a old school drill bit. A lot of locals around here use it as a verb to describe when your front wheel drifts into the uphill side of single track that's been cut into the side of a mountain. Now, when you hit that uphill part of the the single track, your front wheel tends to bite and dig in just like an auger. So to say I augered into the side of the mountain is perfectly clear to riders I know, except when it isn't. My wife, who is, of course, picked up words I use, told a riding friend of hers as she was riding last week that she augered into a freshly cut trail during a ride, only to find that friend laughing for minutes and then laughed about it several more times during the ride and named the ride auger is now a verb on on her you know, Strava write up for the you know, for the ride. I think that a lot of us in cycling we have to make up words uh, to describe things that we normally do that are kind of unusual. So I have questions, uh, guys. Do you have words that you have brought into common use for your writing group, or that your writing group has brought into use that you use? Uh, you notice that I've said the word beta a couple times during this podcast on purpose. Uh, that's one we use and is borrowed from uh, rock climbing. Uh, which ones would you submit as worthy of general use? Patrick, you're a word guy. Yeah. Um, well, one of the funny things is 
that uh, auger around here is anytime you hit the ground hard enough to dig up dirt. Ah, so it's, I, I would say <laughs> I have similar a use, a slightly different, yeah. but I like it. Yeah. Um, when your head is the drill bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, good Lord, I'm blanking right now. Uh, I've got my own terms for things that I do, like playing tow truck. Uh, that's, you know, anytime I'm pulling a group. Uh, or mm-hmm. playing goaltender, which is uh, anytime I'm at the back of a group trying to make sure that people don't get dropped. Uh, I don't know that those have slipped into common usage by anyone else, though. Uh, How that, about do, do you use beta? Is that is that a common one out there? Nope. I know that one from climbing because I used to do some climbing, but it doesn't. No, it doesn't happen no. around here. How about another one from climbing flash? As in, when you, when you flash a root in climbing, it's you get it on the first try. We use it whenever we do a technical move. If you flash it, you just you ride up to it, you ride over it or down it, with uh, without any you know without scouting it or figuring it out. You mm-hmm. just do it. You use flash? No, we use red point. No, I'm kidding. Oh. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs> well, red red point uh, is slightly different from flash. I, I think, I think you've watched somebody climb it. You know, you've, you've actually seen someone climb it. Um, and then you get it on your first try. Whereas if I recall correctly, flash is when you walk up to it, climb it the first time, but you've never seen anybody on the route before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of what I mean by flash when, uh, on a bike. So yeah. I think a lot of climbing terms probably are applicable to mountain biking if we were to borrow them. Sure. So Hadi, mm. how about you? Oh, flash. Flash to me means something in a newsroom. So I come from the news side of business. If you say flash in a broadcast newsroom, that means bulletin or urgent. So on the news right. wires, there's something called a flash. I know this is kind of inside ball here, but <laughs> if somebody says, hey, check that flash, that means check that latest bulletin. So that's flash in my world. I wouldn't know it otherwise. Yeah. That's the only way I know and- it. And here in uh, SoCal, Fatty, I'm sure we have terms like that, and they're kind of escaping me. They probably become so normal around here that I just don't even consider them you know, terms or anything like that. But I tell you one thing. If you showed up on a group right here and started hearing some of the nicknames that get tossed around, you'd be lost. Like, we have three <laughs> Gregs here, right? The first Greg is Sterno, because his last name is Stern, so they call him Sterno. Then we have G-Money. And then we have G3, so the three Gregs, right? You'd probably be lost. Or who, G3, who's Stern? What? Who the hell is that? We have a Major, a Baby Seal, Manslaughter, Tinkerbell, <laughs> and, of course, Hottie. That would be me. So nicknames is what gets tossed around here, and you can kind of get lost if you don't have a lineup card, in, especially in the L.A. scene. You know, the funny and, thing to me is that I, I tend to think of most cycling lingo is reasonably universal at least within the u.s certainly it's going to differ from what folks are saying in belgium but i mean dab you know you put a foot Mm -hmm. down briefly to get through something uh scorpion you know anytime you crash and your feet hit your helmet uh aren't those reasonably universal scorpion i don't know i've never heard scorpion before really like it oh yeah it's a good one oh so i've only done it once i don't want to do it again point (laughs) <laughs> okay. Or yeah. two out of three of us didn't have not heard that one. <laughs> I would like to make a case for a universal uh, and universally editable glossary of cycling terms. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. We I need think, to pull that together. 
I think flash is a good word. I, I mean, for for what we do, I think that auger is a fantastic word for what we do. Uh, and uh, of course, dab. And I like scorpion. And I'm sure that there are many more that we have not heard of, probably that have become widely used, but only in regions. We got to know each other's words, guys. It's it's all these dialects need to come together. The tribes need to be united. <laughs> Chronicle books, we're coming for you. All right. Okay, guys. Uh, well, I think that we are ready for our first break. When we come back, Patrick's going to talk about the judgment of NABs. It makes it sound like that was something really serious. <laughs> court case. I don't think judgment it was. <laughs> Judge Patrick. And then Paceline Picks. So stoked on this trail. So stoked on water. So stoked on this bar. I'm so stoked. So gnarly. Gnarly. So sick. So sick. You were so sketchy, man. So rad. Epic. Epic. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for cyclists. They do this by qualifying endurance athletes through quizzes that demonstrate their knowledge of and adherence to a healthy lifestyle. Health IQ follows applicants all the way through the process from when they submit interests to starting applications, from going through underwriting to policy in force. The policy is underwritten by one of our top partners, an insurer. Health IQ's underwriting advantages include family history, reducing your chance of being penalized for adverse family health history if you are otherwise healthy. Low resting heart rate. Most carriers will penalize people if their heart rate is too low. We help them recognize that this is a sign of your excellent health and fitness. The Health IQ Advantage is their unique mortality model on the health conscious, and they have lower rates for health conscious people, just like a good driver gets savings on auto insurance. And they have unique underwriting calculations that replace BMI with waist to hip ratio and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paceline. Hottie and I have taken our polls. We're exhausted, sweating, barely hanging on. And that's an okay thing because Patrick is now going to talk about being all judgmental and stuff. (laughs) So this past weekend, the North American Handmade Bicycle Show made its first ever appearance in New England. And the show happened at the Connecticut Convention Center in Hartford. Now, as I've mentioned previously, I'm chief judge for the awards. It's a job I take seriously, but that said, it's not actually a job. I do this on a strictly volunteer basis. Because the show was on the East Coast this year, we got to see work from a bunch of builders who haven't displayed at NABs in some time. Chris Bishop was back. I have one of his bikes, and I'm a big fan of his. He's previously won Best in Show. Peter Weigel was also back, and he brought his A++ game. It's funny, I, I had a conversation with Bishop where he told me that he thought he'd have a great shot at winning an award. But then he found out that Peter Weigel was going to be there and he was like, oh man, I'm toast. (laughs) He did still go on to win best Philip Brace frame. Uh, Weigel won best lugged frame and best road bike. Now, when it came time to judge best in show, the Weigel bike that won those two awards was an instant finalist also because he's just Peter flipping Weigel. So was the bike from James Bleakley of black sheep bikes who won the artisan award for the second straight year. 
But there was a mountain bike, a long travel 29er from Altruiste in a little town, Notre Dame, in New Brunswick, Canada, that snuck in and won the day. The bike was absolutely unique at the show. It was the only long travel 29er there. And the frame design, I believe there was only one other full suspension mountain bike, if I recall correctly, but the frame design was most unusual. It had a curved seat tube uh, that allowed it to pass around the shock. And then there was this crazy reinforcement done on the down tube. He, uh, the builder, uh, Gabriel Lang, he showed me photos of that. Just some really ingenious work. And it's funny because he's like, there are so many guys here who are so much smarter than me or so much better builders. And I would just chuckle at that because it's like, well, but you're the guy who brought this. Nobody else brought this bike. And there's nobody else who has a bike like this. So it's the first time a mountain bike has ever won best in show. In our conversation, us judges around which bike should win, I actually made the case for, for Altruist. The bike isn't crazy expensive. Frame set is just $38.50. And it's totally custom. He wants to make more of these. And I'm not really sure that can be said uh, for either Weigel or Bleakley. I mean, the Black Sheep's a $16,000 bike. Um, cool as hell. But, you know, I don't know that he really wants to spend, whatever, three months of his life doing that. Um, and then there's the fact that this is a long travel 29er. 160 front, 150 rear. And so it's contemporary to the market in a way that... You know, some of the other bikes there, particularly the Weigel and the Black Sheep, uh, are not. Um, so the question I want to put to you guys is, when it comes to mind, when someone whips out the word best in conjunction with bike, what is it you think of? I'm pleased with the outcome of our judging, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your concepts uh, about the intersection point between best and bike. <laughs> Hottie. You just finished your search for the perfect gravel bike. Yeah. <laughs> Some may say the best gravel bike. So what are your thoughts? I, you know, I, I love my bike. It's Fat Chance. Chris was there. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I told him hi for I, you. Yeah, would I, would I dare call it the best bike? Well, it's right now it's the best bike for me. You know, I struggle with superlatives when it comes to bike. I hear this all the time on the bike. Oh, man, these are the best bibs I've ever worn. I go, yeah, tell let's talk in two months. When you sat in them for, you know, 500, 1,000 miles. Yeah, sure, right. And as I listen to you, Patrick, I go, well, they picked the best in show, but it wasn't easy. Why? Because it just never is. I mean, there's so much good stuff out there. Picking a best is like, yeah, this is our best, but these were all damn. You didn't pick a worst, right? Because they're, they're, everything <laughs> there was so great, right? I mean, I saw some stuff from two guys you know well, Danucci and Bishop. I was just drooling, like, well, that's got to be the best. What else yeah. could, but you guys found something else. So I struggle with the word best. I get it. You guys are judges. You have a job to do. You have to award someone best in show, best new builder, best paint, what have you. I get that. And there, there's some standouts, I'm sure, amongst the group. But I always struggle with that word best. Understandable. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there were any number of bikes that, you know, could have gone home with that award and I wouldn't have lost an ounce, uh, a minute of sleep over it. So, um, Fatty, what about you? I mean, is there a scenario even where your favorite bike wouldn't be something made out of carbon fiber? Well, I don't think material has much to do with it as far as I'm concerned. No, um, it doesn't. 
No, I it I I buy mass produced bikes. I have never had a bike made for me. Well, no, that's not true. Uh, Matt Chester made a, a titanium monster cross for me years and years ago. Um, but that was more of a – that was a labor of love for him and uh, he needed a website and I could make one. Um, as far as the you know, material for me, you know, most mass-produced bikes that are better than mid-range are carbon fiber right now. And the reason I buy mass-produced bikes is um, as a someone who doesn't spend all of his time – you know, drilling into what is there, and I don't go to NABs, and I don't uh, spend, all, you know, and I don't ask, you know, people who are deeply knowledgeable about bikes all the time about what I ought to be getting, because when I do, I get a million different opinions, which is kind of where Hottie was with that. You know, what is your best bike? You get something from Cannondale or Specialized or Trek, you're going to get a bike that is pretty good to very good to amazing. Um, you know, with the same consistency as if you go to a uh, – if you go to Red Lobster, you're going to get okay lobster, right? You're not going to get the best in the world, but you didn't have to research it. It's kind of, I, I, if you buy a Honda Accord, you're not going to get a Rolls Royce, but you can get it fixed anywhere. I'm not trying to make a case against uh, – these amazing bikes that you're describing. But for people like me who ride bikes and think of them more as commodities for the experience of the ride, uh, to be honest, it's just a, there isn't a ton of appeal. Um, I think it is cool that a mountain bike and furthermore, a, a full suspension 29er was picked because that is different. It represents a decrease in snobbishness to me. And I like that. Um, would I be able to tell that it is materially better than, say, the Epic that I have on order? Hard for me to say. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, all righty, guys. Well, <laughs> baseline picks. Uh, we can go on to the baseline picks. I was kind of hoping to hear the counter argument, to be honest, <laughs> uh, that, you know, why I should be looking at a at a uh, hand-built bike uh, as opposed to a mass-produced bike. You know, my my response on that is the moment you start whipping out shoulds, uh, other than, you know, you should do things to take care of yourself, you should do things to plan well, blah, blah, blah. It, in terms of buying a bike, should is a word that really needs to be banished from the lexicon. So that's one <laughs> word that won't be in our book of, of bike lingo. I, uh, you know, it's one of those things you, you should buy the bike. There we go. Um, you, you should buy the bike that you like, you know, and if buying a custom bike isn't exciting, you doesn't seem like a great use of your time because you do have to invest more time on that, then that's not the thing you should do. Man, you're terrible at arguing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, All I'm a right. big believer in these guys and and what they do, but I don't want to try to twist somebody's arm into liking them if it's not the sort of thing that gets them excited. That's just silly. Fair enough. You know, and I think probably what I the subtext of what I am saying is until I actually it, it, it's kind of it, until I have looked at 
and seen the value of something, it would be really hard for me to say, yes, this hand-built bike is better than that mass-produced bike. But it is something that I think would be interesting. And I, if I were to go to a hand-built uh, bike show like this one, probably that would go a long way toward uh, that kind of education. So who knows? Maybe one of those in my future. And on, I think at this point, to the Paceline Picks, as you said, Patrick, I know you just finished doing your poll, but you know what? I'm going to spring the first pick on you anyway. <laughs> okay. So I made it back to New England. I lived just north of Hartford in Northampton for seven years. So I took two days to go and see some familiar faces. And yesterday, I got to spend a little while at Seven Cycles and see uh, my old pal, Rob Vandermark, who's CEO, uh, my friend, Robot, who... Uh, writes the Friday group ride for RKP and occasionally does other stuff as well. I uh, got to see those folks and I spent a little time in what passes for a showroom uh, there at their uh, factory and see a couple of new models and also see uh, some new design elements. There's uh, They're doing some new dropouts that help uh, stiffen the bike up and they're also pretty darn attractive. And they've got... They've got a frame that's, um, I believe it's under 1500 grams, depending on, uh, just what size it is, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I've owned two sevens. Um, I'm pretty satisfied with the bike I have, but I walked in there and was looking at those bikes and it's like, good Lord, here I am. I've just finished nabs and I am drooling over these bikes. I want another seven right now. <laughs> so they're getting my, they're getting my pick because uh, in addition to the altruist and a gravel bike that Chris Bishop showed, um, that's something I keep going back to in my head and going, man, wouldn't it be fun to order another seven? Ah, uh, and once they get in your head, you'll never get them out. Yeah. There, there is nothing as beautiful as a seven. I tell you. All right. I'm going to go ahead and take the second pick. And it is way on the other end of the pricing spectrum. It is a recent penny pinching CO2 cartridge epiphany. I've had a lot of bad luck, bad luck with flats lately, guys. And I have been going through CO2 cartridges on my rides at a ridiculous rate. And it seems generally on road bikes, at least, that a 12-gram cartridge is about the right size to inflate a road tube, but obviously not enough to fix a higher-volume tire. And for a long time, I've been uh, buying—I've bought two sizes of cartridges and kept them on hand, 12-gram for road, 20-gram for mountain bikes. But today, while I was shopping online, I did some obvious math that I should have done a while ago. The short version is this— for 12 gram cartridges, it is super easy to find a deal at about four cents per gram in cartridges per gram of CO2. For 16 gram cartridges, you are going to pay at least 11 cents per gram or more. For 20 gram cartridges, plan on paying around 15 cents per CO2 gram. And once in a while, it's worth it to have extra to save the time that it would take to use two uh, 12 gram cartridges for uh, changing a mountain bike tube, like if you're racing. But if you um, are going to be, you know, for anything except for a race, 
from now on, I'm using 12 gram cartridges. $25 will get you a box of 50 12 gram threaded cartridges. At that price, it doesn't hurt nearly as bad to help out a fellow cyclist on the side of the road who needs a cartridge. So my pick, 12 gram threaded CO2 cartridges, buy enough to share. Very cool. Hottie. <laughs> and, you know, when you got 50, um, I don't know, maybe put stickers on them and start uh, and start retailing yeah, them. Yeah, put pace line stickers on them. There we go. Mm-hmm. Pace line, 12 grams, CO2 cartridges. Yeah. Um, just for what it's worth, where I found that uh, $50 for or uh, $25 for 50 is at gas.depot.com. So worth checking out. Cool. Hadi, what's your pick? Ah, my pace line pick takes us back to the Olympic Games in South Korea. But my pick, or picks in this case, didn't start there. It started in Switzerland. Like I said last show, Mrs. Hardy and I love watching cross-country and biathlon. The other day, I'd finished up the very exciting men's mass start 15K biathlon and was advancing through the day's coverage on my DVR when something caught my eye. Bikes. NBC was spotlighting one of the contestants in aerial skiing, Misha Gosser. He was representing Switzerland. Misha was in ninth place trying to advance to the second round. His parents were in the audience. They had arrived a few days before the competition by bike from (laughs) Switzerland. Guido Hewler and Rita Rudiman rode 10,000 miles through 20 countries to see their son compete in the Olympic Games. They rode for one year. In fact, they took off not knowing if their son had qualified for the Games. The couple says the toughest section was the Pamir Highway, which cuts through Afghanistan and Uzbekistan at 15,000 feet. They also hit a roadblock at the Chinese border. They were unable to get visas because of Guido's big beard, so they found another way around and made it to Pyeongchang. Once in South Korea, they camped outside for a couple days in temperatures around zero degrees. Their son, who flings his body 60 feet into the air, describes his parents as crazy. Misha made it to the final (laughs) round in aerials, where he pulled off a back double full, full, full with a 4.52 degree of difficulty and a score of 121.72. Sixth place. Not bad. But his parents, both in their 50s, who pulled off a 365-day, 10,000-mile, 20-country ride with a degree of difficulty of about a million, must be worthy of some kind of medal. And at the very least, a paceline pick. Congrats to Misha, Guido, and Rita. That is awesome. <laughs> that is an awesome pair of parents. Mm-hmm. Great pull, Hottie, there. That is fantastic. Hottie, what's coming up on the redkiteprayer.com? What's coming up for me on RKP? I'm glad you oh. asked. I'll kick it That's to Patrick, true. but I actually do have a review up um, for a fabulous set of tires from Kenda. They're the Valkyrie tires. Uh, and it's a, it, go and read the article and go to that last paragraph and find out why they call them Valkyries. Pretty interesting story behind there. But the Valkyrie is a do-all race tire that won't let you down either on the road if things uh, get a little rough as far as punctures are concerned. So great tire from Kenda. Lots of sizes, too. They do 23, 25, 28, and 30s. And they do tubulars as well. So They've made a lot of ground on their on their race tire. Kenda has, and uh, they're really trying to prove that you can be fast and durable. And that's I of I course meant to say hottie when <laughs> I said that. I totally, totally.
totally that was not a mistake. Patrick, <laughs> I don't suppose you have anything that you would like to talk about coming well, up on RKP. For the foreseeable future, all of my content will be concerning the awards at NABS. I'm doing posts on each of the categories and which bikes were the finalists and why each of the winners uh, came out on top. So that's going to keep going for probably the better part of another week. You know what? I'm going to read those. I am. I, this episode has kind of made uh, me a little bit more curious about this big segment of bikes that I have not really spent a lot of time looking at. And I think that that is going to be a wrap for this episode of the Pays Line. One last reminder, find us on Apple Podcasts. Take a moment to rate and review us. For Hadi and Patrick, I'm Fatty. Thanks so much for listening to episode 104 of the Pays Line. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll edit that. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat>